This is the Morgan family coming home from the lake. Ed and Marilyn have been married 12 years. That's Kelly, Sue, and Casey in the back seat. They've driven this road a dozen times before, and nothing ever happened. But today is different. Today, Ed will become a killer. And here's his weapon. Good old Ed Morgan. A mighty careful man in his own home. He can't imagine how anyone could have been so careless. Ed Morgan, every man, anyone who handles fire in any form is a potential killer. Anyone can start a fire and never even know it. Please be very careful with fire, please. Only you can prevent forest fires. It's kind of fun. Kind of fun throwback. It'll make more sense in a moment. But uh, Good morning, everyone. My name is John Larson. So good to be with you guys. Uh, I congratulate you guys for making it through all the uh, hurdles to get here. Your, your body's saying it's 9 o'clock. There's also construction in front of this building, and you made it here. So way to go. And also, welcome to all of you on live stream. You're probably on spring break, somewhere warm. Thanks for joining us. Good to be with you guys. So happy to be with you here this morning. I uh, want to give a few greetings here to start off. First of all, I want to uh, greet some people who are back here. I want to greet Jacqueline. Welcome back from the mission field. It's good to see you. Also, welcome Brian Morton. Good to see you, buddy. And uh, to our recent returning short-term missionaries, we're glad to see you guys here too. So, so glad to, to be with you. Yeah. Uh, a couple announcements here. For those of you on the live stream, you're going to want to grab uh, supplies so you're ready for communion at the end of the sermon. And then here's my announcement before we get started. Baptisms. We are just about a month away from Easter, and our plan is to do some baptisms right over here during our Easter celebration. And um, maybe you've kind of thought about baptism before, and maybe you've not done it, not really sure about what the Bible says about it. And if that's you, then I'd encourage you to come to our baptism class. Or for those of you who are parents, maybe you're thinking about your kids, to uh, come and explore what the Bible says about the topic of baptism. So we'll do a class two weeks before Easter, and then we'll do that. The Bible doesn't say that baptism saves us, but it's also not optional either. So I'd love for you to dig into the scriptures and discover for yourselves what it is all about. Well, we are in the book of James, a wonderful book, a unique book in the New Testament, and I'm excited to be in this section with you here this morning. We're entering the section of James that is probably the most influenced by the book of Proverbs. Some people say James is like the Proverbs of the New Testament, and if any part of James is like that, it's definitely this part for sure. James gives us some concrete, memorable life input for the complexities of life. And he's going to build on illustrations and imagery that we have from the Bible using the Greek culture that he lived in. And he uses very vivid imagery. Things including, we're going to look at today, things like horseback riding, seafaring, forest fires, Taming wild animals, 
a bubbling spring of water, Mediterranean olives, grapes, and figs. And even though right now we are 2,000 years removed from when James wrote this, his illustrations still stick with us, and they're vivid, and they're still understandable today. And so in one sense, I feel like James is giving the sermon this morning. He did all the hard work. He came up with the sermon illustrations. I'm just giving it to you and letting the Holy Spirit do his work. The tone of the passage this morning is rather interesting. It's one of warning. If James were writing this and he had texting or all that we have, he would probably include it in all caps or bold font or exclamation points because he's really trying to get across something big. His imagery is big. The stakes are high. And so the commercial can be somewhat helpful for us as we picture that tone and the carelessness of, um, of that individual. That's kind of the tone of James this morning. And so our challenge this morning will not be to understand the complexities of this passage. This is not like diving into the depths of Paul's writings. It's not very hard to understand. Kids, if you're in the room, you'll be able to understand everything I'm talking about. That won't be hard. This will be the challenging part this morning. Will we let our hearts receive this warning from James? It's easy to understand it. I guarantee you, you're going to remember the illustrations that James says today at lunch. It's not hard. But will we receive this warning? Or will we hear it and just walk away the exact same? So that's up to you. It's up to your desire, your faith, and what the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life. Um, so here's where we're going this morning. I always like to kind of give you a heads up. Like This is the summary, and at the end I'll probably say it again so that you get it. Beware! That tongue of yours contains unsuspectingly great power for evil. The net effect of your life hangs upon how you use it. So, since we need God's help, let's pray, and then let's dive into the scripture. We're going to have a great time this morning. God, we come before you humble. We want to hear from you. You say that your word is like a hammer. We pray that the hammer of your word would strike each one of our hearts, that it would change us, that you would make us more like Jesus, that you would redeem our tongues and help us to bridle them. Help us to receive this warning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. James chapter 3. Grab that Bible in front of you. It's going to be handy this morning. We're in James 3, and it's just page 1012. 1012. James 3. We'll read the whole thing, and then we're going to break it up bit by bit and make sure that we're understanding it. So you'll really get to hear the passage twice this morning. Page 1012. Listen to the words of scripture. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. 
Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set afire by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tame and has been tamed by mankind, but no human can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is God's word. All right, we'll go back to the first couple verses and try to unpack a couple things that might need clarifying, and, um, and then we'll um, see how we can glean from it. So first of all, we start with a warning, a warning about words. And it looks like it specifically, James is warning people about a desire to become a teacher. He says not many of them should be. A little context might be helpful here. James is writing in the first century, so it's the beginning of Christianity, and he's writing to an audience of Jewish Christians. In the culture that they had before they became Christians, there was a high value for teachers. You remember how Jesus spoke of some of their teachers. This is Matthew 23, when he gives woes to the Pharisees. He said that um, they love the place of honor at feasts the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. Teaching was a highly esteemed thing in this culture and a number of people were motivated out of the prominence. They wanted to have influence, they wanted power, they wanted recognition. And so he's warning them that really not many of them should become teachers. And why does he say that? He says that Teachers will be judged with greater strictness. Teachers will be judged with greater strictness. That's a little confusing at first, I think. Are teachers incurring future judgment on themselves merely by speaking? Am I incurring future judgment myself by speaking right now? Should the sermon be over? This is a little dangerous. No, I think James is not referring to a final judgment as if we are racking up both righteous rewards and we're also going to be condemned in the future. This is not what James is saying. He's saying there's a higher standard for teachers, for teachers and leaders. When somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about says something or fails, they stumble morally, that's one thing. But when a teacher, someone who's prominent, 
stumbles and fails morally or says the wrong thing, there's a higher standard. They are judged more strictly. And so that's why he says it's not good for many of them to become teachers. They need to think about that. And I would even say briefly, that's why here at Summit View, we place both a high value on the word and we also raise up leaders based on character, like it says in the New Testament, because it is important. Now, I believe that this section we're talking about, all of it doesn't just apply to people who want to be teachers, because a lot of us in here probably don't feel like we have that desire. I believe he's speaking more generally because of this. You'll notice in verse 2, he says, for... We all stumble in many ways. He could have said, for all of us, teachers stumble in many ways. And then furthermore, the rest of the passage, he never references teachers again. Just the first verse. He says, not many of you should be teachers. And then he gives all these warnings about the tongue. And so while this passage does apply to teachers, I think it applies more generally to all of us. All of us can relate to the problem of taming our tongue. Um, And so this is meant to be read for a common audience. So that's how I'm going to preach it this morning. And then you'll notice he mentions this last verse. He talks about a perfect man with bridled speech. He has a bridled body and therefore a bridled life. This is not the first time this phrase has showed up in James. He actually previews it in the first chapter when he says this. If anyone thinks he is religious that's a positive word, and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus, and yet they can't control their tongue, their tongue is out of control, it's causing a lot of harm, he says their religion is worthless, it's not doing anything, it's not real, it's probably like a dead faith, like Travis mentioned last week. And so James is making a point here that a bridled tongue leads to a bridled entire body, which by implication means an entire bridled life. So with those first remarks, let's move on to James' first illustration, one that you certainly are familiar with and you probably won't forget. He describes small things controlling a big thing, things that are disproportionately powerful, things that are like the tongue. He starts with a horse He talks about a bit that's put into the mouth of a horse, and it guides them wherever the horse rider wants to go. You guys are probably familiar with this. If you're not, the bit is the part that goes inside of the horse's mouth, and the reins are connected to it. And so with the slightest tug of the rein, it puts pressure on the bit, which goes inside the horse's mouth. If you want to imagine what it feels like, you could take the pen that's in front of you in the pew, and you could find the back of your gums, and you could push down really hard. Horses love it. It feels really good. No, they don't. Of course they don't. Just the slightest bit of pressure, and they're subdued, and they'll turn to the right. They'll turn to the left because it's like a pressure point. James says the tongue is like a bit. Just a small little thing, this little thing that's about this big, controls an animal that weighs who knows how much. It's humongous. And then James gives us another picture of the exact same concept. He just wants to make it vivid and memorable. And he talks about the rudder on a ship. 
I'm probably familiar with rudders on ships because of the Bible. I mean, that's, this is where I first learned about it. So about the rudders at the back of a ship, it's relatively small compared to the massive ship, and it is essentially the steering wheel for the ship. And so something small that turns this way or that way, even with big waves, even with wind, will turn an entire ship. That small thing makes a big difference, and it sets the whole course of the boat. So it is with our tongues. A small thing, a small thing inside of your mouth will control your whole body, and it will control the direction of your entire life. And so that's James' point, is that our tongues are disproportionately powerful. Isn't that great? You'll never forget it. The bit and the rudder. Let's talk about his next illustration, also easy to understand. He says that the tongue is basically a fiery evil within. The fiery evil within. It's, he describes it as both a fire and a world of unrighteousness. Why does James describe the tongue as a world of unrighteousness? The best answer I found was that because every sort of evil in the world finds an ally with an uncontrolled tongue. An uncontrolled tongue moves forward any and every sort of sin. And so I think Calvin famously said that this small piece of flesh contains the whole world of iniquity. And then a fire, meaning that it is destructive. A fire evil within with this amazing effect. It, it stains our whole body. It sets the whole course of our life on fire, and it's kindled by the fire of hell. Jesus uses the word here, Gehenna, and Gehenna was um, the place that was outside of Jerusalem, used to be the valley of um, Hinnom, where people would burn their trash. And in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it became known uh, for its evil, and it became synonymous with the place of final judgment that was yet to come. And so Jesus is, or I'm sorry, James is saying that this tongue is set on fire by hell itself. An uncontrolled tongue is empowered by forces of evil, by Satan and by demons. So beware. Look out for what's inside of you. It's more dangerous than you realize. One flick of the cigarette. We're about there. Okay. What does the fire do? It's destructive. One little spark, one uncontrolled cigarette, and you've got a raging forest fire. Near Jerusalem, the word that's translated for, um, for trees here or a shrub would refer to these small shrubs in the Palestinian hills. It's particularly dry, and even now, some 2,000 years later, it's not uncommon for a forest fire to start out of nowhere because of this dry climate. We live in a different climate, but we can relate. And many of you in the room will, of course, remember this. This is from two and a half years ago. This is at Horsetooth. This is the Cameron Peak Fire of 2020. This is what it looked like locally. Here's a picture from Estes Park. The Cameron Peak Fire is the largest fire in Colorado history so far. Over 200,000 acres were burned over the course of 112 days. I believe in one weekend, there might have been 100,000 acres that were burned. 
I want you to behold the progression that took place from August to October. Here, I know you can't see it too well, but this is a picture of the evacuations that were required for the area. So back in August, relatively small, and we get to October and areas of Masonville, not too far away from right here, were under mandatory evacuation. Authorities presume that the fire did not begin from lightning, but because of human negligence. One mistake impacted countless of lives. It affected you. You were breathing in smoke. You probably didn't want to go outside very much. Things were hazy and dark. It was kind of depressing. Ash was falling from the sky. It might have made you cough. So many firefighters at work. Millions of dollars were spent, all because of something that started with one spark. And so James is warning us that our tongue is a spark. Our words are a spark, I guess you could say. One tiny little word can start off a fire, a forest fire of almost uncontrollable destruction. And so we need to beware. There's a fiery evil that dwells inside each one of us within our bodies. Let's look at James' next illustration regarding the tongue. Verses 7 and 8. The tongue is, we could say, an untamable predator. James starts the, um, this section with the word for, and in this case, he's just continuing into a new thought. He's not connecting it with the last one. You can do this in Greek. It's really the start of a brand new thought. So don't let that confuse you. And so he describes all these different kinds of animals that can be tamed. And the language is rather um, familiar with um, Genesis. I think, did I put the verse in? I did not. We'll go back. Uh, in Genesis, when God created all the different animals and then he made Adam and Eve image bearers to subdue the creation of dominion, these are some of the animals that are mentioned. So God gave authority to mankind to take care of, have dominion over all these animals, to tame them, I guess you could say, like a zookeeper does. Uh, and yet, here's his point, even though we have dominion over all these animals, a zookeeper can control an elephant or a giraffe to a degree, we cannot control the tongue. We can't tame it. We are unable to do so. And that's kind of ironic. It's so small. Think about the big animals that we can tame. We can't control something that's this big. And for me, this is kind of the stumbling block I run into or the speed bump that I run into when I read this passage. James says that no one can tame the tongue. He wrote that we ought to bridle our tongues, and then he tells us that we can't tame our tongues. Are we just supposed to try hard even though we're destined to fail? Is he setting us up for failure? Are we doomed? I kind of wrestled over this. And luckily I found some insight, some ancient insight from about 1,600 years ago from the theologian Augustine. And I appreciate this. I hope it helps you. I'm going to give his quote, and then I'm going to put it in simple terms for you to understand. Are you ready? Okay, put on your thinking cap. This is what he says. And James said this, meaning no, um, no one can tame the tongue, uh, not with a view of our permitting through our neglect the continuance of so great an evil to ourselves, but in order that we might be induced to request the help of divine grace for the taming of our tongue. 
This is what it means. AKA, James didn't write that the tongue's untamable with the result that you would just continue defeated in your sinful speech. Oh, well, I'm bound to sin, so, so what? I'll just keep going on with this. That's not what he's saying. This is what he means. For he does not say, none can tame the tongue, but no man. In order that when it is tamed, we may acknowledge it to be affected by the mercy of God, the help of God, the grace of God. James says that it's humanly untamable. He didn't say that it's untamable for God. Instead of being defeated, we ought to surrender to God and depend on his grace for our speech. Does that make sense? Hopefully that's helpful. You can think on it a little bit. That's a deep one. We'll loop back to that concept at the end of the sermon. Let's move on to James' last point about how the tongue reveals what's inside. The tongue reveals what's inside of here. When he says, I'll just reread this section, with it, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. With it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brother, these things ought not be so. And then he ends with this. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? No. Can a fig tree, my brother, bear olives? No, or a grapevine produce figs? No, neither can a salt pond produce fresh water. And so when he, uh, he begins off by saying that our tongues are kind of double in their nature. We can praise God with them, and yet we will curse other image bearers. And when he says curse, don't think about cussing, don't think about a magical spell, but think about speaking poorly of another slandering another, putting them in a lower place. We sing God's praises this morning. We're just doing it. We're going to do it again. And yet later in the week, we're going to speak poorly of somebody else. We're going to not honor the fact that they're an image bearer. It might be a coworker. It might be someone we disagree with politically. It might be one of our family members. Whether they're saved or not, all of them, are image bearers. They're made in the dignity and likeness of God, even if they're broken. And I love how James says this. Uh, It just reminds me of a a fatherly voice, his tone here. And he says, my brothers, these things ought not be so. I, I just have this warmth about it. It's just like, you were made for something different. You have a different identity. And this ought not be for you. And the reason he says this is he, he gives some references to, um, to maybe to point to our identity, and I'll explain that in a second. He uses this imagery. All these things, we've got olives, we've got figs, we've got grapes, we've got a pool, we've got a spring. And one of the, one of the resources I said, I read, mentioned that anyone who's traveled to the Mediterranean knows the ubiquity of olives, grapes, and figs. These are common plants. These are common imagery around that area where he wrote. And he makes a very kind of obvious point that one cannot produce the other. So any one of these, it's going to produce after its kind. Obviously, it's not going to produce differently. And you might recognize this idea. You might say, huh, maybe I've read this recently. I'm familiar with that. 
That's because Jesus used a similar concept, almost the exact same, but slightly different, in his teaching. And so James, most likely the younger brother, half-brother of Jesus, is probably just learning from his older brother. Uh, And this is what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6. This is not on the screen. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree, this is on the slide, is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So Jesus and James together tell us that words reflect What's inside? You want to see inside somebody? You want to know their heart? Well, the words are the gateway. The words are the litmus test to see what's inside. And furthermore, we speak out of our nature. We can't help it. And so if we are a fig tree, we produce figs. If we have an evil heart, evil speech pours come out of our mouth. If we have a good heart, there will be good that comes out. A renewed and bridled heart speaks truth and good. We'll come back to that soon. I know that might leave you hanging, a little tension there. We'll get to it. So let's move on to applying this warning to our lives personally. You remember I said this is the hardest part. It's easy to understand everything I said. The bridle, the rudder, you'll remember it. Here's the hard part. So I want you to be ready. You'll notice that James speaks rather generally about our speech. I don't know if you notice, he didn't give a list of all the different sins that one can do with his or her tongue. He speaks rather generally. And I believe that James was influenced by the book of Proverbs in this section. He borrows some of its language, he uses some of its form. And so I think it's safe for us to glean from the book of Proverbs what the Proverbs has to say about the tongue and about speech. There are many verses in the Proverbs about the tongue, the mouth, the speech, our words. But here's the overall theme I'll give you, summed up in one basic idea. Your words will either produce destruction or your words will produce life. One of the two, with all the different examples underneath it. I'll give you here two examples. From Proverbs 12, it says, there, are, um, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrust, just killing somebody inside with your quick words. But the tongue of the wise bring healing. So you got death with, on the one hand, or you got life on the other. Or this other one from Proverbs 10, the lips of the righteous feed many, or I think the NIV says nourish many. Think about nourishment from food. So the lips of the righteous nourish many, we could say, but fools die for lack of sense. So in one sense, you've got life from words or a lack of words, you've got death. And so I thought it'd be good just to take some of those examples and let James' warning kind of cut us to the heart and make this real, make sure we don't just understand the analogies, but we play them out into our lives. So let's look at a few examples that are either from the Proverbs or the New Testament with sin regard to our speech. These are all words of destruction. Think about the destruction that occurs from lying or from deceitfulness. Lying is obvious, it's a a complete falsehood, a deceitfulness, meaning 
maybe not uh, showing the full truth, disclosing some of it, hiding some of it, perhaps due to fear. And so that would be like a spark that starts a wildfire. A little lie, a little deceit will sow distrust in a relationship, which I'm sure you've seen happen, maybe in a family or in in a work setting, and it just becomes a raging fire, and you cannot control it. You can't reverse the damage. The damage has been done, and you've got 200,000 acres of forest fire damage. Here's another example of words of destruction, slander and gossip. This is, like I said earlier, what James meant when he said we curse people. We bless God, we curse people. We speak of others in a demeaning way, or we we rub their, you know, we put their, um, their reputation through the mud. We speak poorly. We assume their, their judgment. We, we assume their motivations, I should say. I've been, I've been hurt by this previously. I'm going to share how I've sinned in, in a second. But I've been hurt by this one re, um, previously. I've been the recipient of slander multiple times. It feels horrible hearing things about you that aren't true. Uh, and even though they're just words, they've previously left me anxious for days and lacking sleep for days. I think about every single resource I read for this passage in James mentioned the childhood taunt. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And every resource said, nope. The wounds caused by sticks and stones can heal. Wounds caused by words really painful, and sometimes don't get healed. Why? Because that tongue inside of you and me is extremely powerful. Another example to cut us to the heart, harshly spoken words. This comes from the Proverbs. This reveals the wild beast inside. I know I've been surprised as a parent by my harshness, I didn't realize that I had anger before I was married or before I had kids. I do. I can feel wrongly justified at times for correcting a child with a harsh tone. My words, my volume, my tone are disproportionately big. And then I come to my senses. I don't want this. This isn't imitating God. And so it humbles me the way my harsh words have brought destruction instead of life. I'll give you one more. Complaining and grumbling. Small little words can affect the entire vibe of a room. You've probably noticed this, probably in the work setting, the difference between a culture where people are grateful versus one where everyone's complaining, nitpicking, grumbling about how things are, It not only changes the whole vibe, but it alters your whole life course. Instead of a perspective of being grateful and feeling blessed, go go the rest of your life feeling selfish and ungrateful. It'll change the whole course of your life based on your speech. So, how about you? Do you see room for improvement uh, in your speech? Do you feel convicted by James' words about how words bring destruction. And so I think James is saying to us in this letter, my brothers, these things ought not be so. 
It shouldn't be this way. And so before we move into communion, this is the hard part, but you guys are going to do great. I know. I've been praying for you. I want to allow James' warning to lead us to be real about our sinful speech. And this isn't going to be big. I just want to give you a brief minute to share with the person next to you a way that you felt convicted by the Holy Spirit. You don't have to share all the details. You could even be just general because you may or may not know the person next to you. But I just want you to share if you felt a conviction regarding your speech with the person next to you. I won't give you long. Then we'll move on, okay? Here we go. And band, you're welcome to come up. Give you one more moment. All right, friends, I'm going to move us forward. Thanks for sharing. That was the hard part. You guys did great. I knew you did great. All right, here's where we're going to wrap up. As we move towards communion, I have a question. What does the gospel message of Jesus' death and resurrection, how does that relate to this passage? How does the gospel of Jesus influence the bridling of our tongues? If you search... Long and hard through this passage, you will notice there are two things that are not there. You will not notice the name of Jesus mentioned in this passage. You will also notice, you will not notice the gospel explicitly mentioned in this passage. It's kind of surprising, isn't it? What are we supposed to make of it? It means that the gospel has nothing to do with our speech. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Some of you are like, oh, no. It's just getting your attention. Obviously, the gospel has something to do with it. And so when we read scripture, here's what we do. We read the passage in front of us, and we let that passage have its full weight of what it means. And then we also read it in light of the entire Bible or in the entire gospel message. And so we'll do with this. We'll let James' warning cut us to the heart And then we're going to let the rest of the gospel give us hope. And so here's how it has to do with it. Jesus makes it clear through his teaching, as well as James, that our hearts are the problem. That we speak evil because our hearts are evil. Cursing words come out of our mouth because we have evil hearts. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks 
And so Jesus' intention for each one of us is to transform us to be like him in every respect, including our speech. And so Jesus came to earth. Think of his example. What a speaker. We've never seen someone use the tongue so well. His words spoke life, but he corrected the lies and he spoke truth so boldly. Amazing speaker. He used his speech well. But we fall short, so far short of his example. Think of all those. I just gave four examples. Man, we sin with our tongues every day so much. And unfortunately, our sinful words earn us a condemnation. The Bible says that our words will be held in account for us. There will be proof, there will be evidence that we deserve God's just condemnation, that we are in danger of the fires of hell for all the ways we've sinned with our mouth. I deserve this punishment, the fires of hell, for my sinful speech. But the crazy news is that Jesus came to take that condemnation, all the ways we've ever messed up with our mouth. With words, he was mocked by others. He took our place on the cross. He was condemned for us. And with the final words of, it is finished, powerful words that reverberated throughout of history and into eternity. Jesus changed our status from condemned to forgiven. But there's more. And Jesus resurrected. He ascended on high. And when he went into heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit would live inside of us. And that now, instead of being controlled by our evil hearts, when we yield to him, we are bridled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit bridles our speech, and instead of speaking death all the time, we can speak life, life to others around us. Imagine what that looks like with me for a moment as I briefly go through these here and see if this works. I might need help with the clicker back there. Instead of lying and deceit, we can speak truth. We can speak God's word, like this. Hey, here's something that I read in the Bible. Life. We come into a room, instead of slandering or gossiping other people, we can express appreciation and praise. Danny, my wife, thank you for helping so much yesterday so I could prepare this sermon. We can, instead of harsh words, we can speak gentle words. The proverb says that a harsh word stirs up anger, but a soft word turns away wrath. Or instead of complaining and grumbling, we can be grateful. Man, think about your workplace. Everybody's saying, man, I'm so grateful for this job. I'm so grateful to work with you guys. Life. You like that? I need a better sound effect. But maybe most of all, how about this? The gospel word. A bridal tongue, a Holy Spirit bridal tongue speaks the truth of the gospel. The gospel I just shared that Jesus came and he died for all of our sinful speech and he came to give us a new tongue, a new tongue that will speak God's praises and speak life wherever we go. And I want you to imagine, think about that image I had of the Cameron Peak fire, that fire just spreading destructively, killing thousands of acres of forest. I want you to picture that in the positive with your tongue, but with life, with the gospel message, or even just with God's word and encouragement. 
picture life spreading around this planet. Everywhere you go, you open your mouth, and bridled by the Holy Spirit, and life is spreading everywhere. I don't know about you, but that encourages me. It makes me want to yield to God and for him to speak through me. So with that, let's transition to taking communion together. And so I just explained the gospel. We're just celebrating the gospel according to how Jesus told us to do it. Um, He said to do it with um, a cup and with some bread. And the bread reminds us of Jesus's body which was torn apart for us. He, he died in our place and his blood, which was poured out for our forgiveness. And so I want to give you a, a theme to consider here. Um, you can recall Jesus' finished work for your sinful speech. Repent, receive his forgiveness for that, and then make this your prayer. Holy Spirit, bridle my tongue to speak life in every sense of the word. You can, you can ponder on that. And the way we're going to do this is uh, you, you can find those right in front of you if you need it. Um, if you need a gluten-free option, we've got some ushers. They're ready to deliver that to you. So you can just stick your hand up, keep it up until they get it to you because they want to make sure you get the right one. And um, you can take this um, as you're ready and make that your prayer silently. And then we're going to um, transition into a song here that will um, express our desire. So let me say a prayer, and then we'll move into taking communion together. God, we receive this warning from your word. These tongues of ours are mighty dangerous. They're mighty powerful. We want to respect that, but we want to glean from what you say here. We want our tongues not to speak destruction, but to speak life. And we're not just going to stay stuck thinking they're untamable. We are going to yield ourselves and entrust ourselves to the grace of God. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Let our tongues be bridled by you so that everywhere we go, we speak life, whether it be truth or encouragement or your gospel word. And we pray that you would help us as we reflect on what you've done for us, Jesus, to redeem our speech. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.